This program is presented by a community producer through Midland Community Television. The City of Midland and MCTV are not responsible for the content of the program. The views presented do not necessarily represent those of the City of Midland or MCTV. If you would like to produce your own program, contact MCTV at 837-3474 or access our website, cityofmidlandmi.gov slash MCTV. Local productions seen on Delta College Public Media are made possible with support from viewers like you. Thank you. Everybody. Welcome to Junior Owns the Spark. Thank you for joining us. Today I will be speaking with Colleen Shafroth, Executive Director of the Mary Hill Museum of Art, located in Goldendale, Washington. Welcome, Colleen. I'm, I'm really thrilled to have you on the program. Uh, I've been to the museum twice now and equally impressed, but probably not many people have been out to Mary Hill Museum of Art. So tell us a little bit about how it got started, its history, and then its collections. Uh, well, the museum really got started as a ranch house. Um, it was going to be the um, focal point for Samuel Hill, the founder's um, ranch. He was going to have a Quaker farming community out here. He originally came out actually from Minnesota, um, established a business in Seattle and began looking around for where he might really want to settle. And one of the places ended up being the Columbia River. He just fell in love with the views and the scenery and um, everything about it, to be honest. And so he began acquiring property down here. He tried for property just a little bit west, but everything sort of fell through. Um, so he ended up purchasing about 5,300 acres, something many people don't realize when they come here that there are 5,300 acres of land that surround the museum, starting just a little bit um, west of it and heading east quite a ways. Um, and then he began advertising it as a Quaker farming community. The difficulty, and he knew this was a challenge, the difficulty was that there wasn't enough water here um, for him to really run farming a farming community. And so he attempted to dam up a, a spring and a stream. And he also um, dammed up so, two different dams on the property, one of which we still use today as the museum's main water supply. The other one just simply failed after a bit. Um, he just couldn't make a go of it. He couldn't talk enough people into coming to purchase property to be part of his dream. And at some point, a friend of his by the name of Loey Fuller, the dancer, and when you were here, you probably saw the gallery dedicated to her. Um, she convinced Samuel Hill that what he really wanted to do was create a museum. Um, I think secretly, or maybe less secretly, she was interested in having that museum in Paris because there's correspondence in the file where she assures Hill that they didn't build buildings out of concrete in Paris. 
concrete was a particular um, love of his. <laughs> so anyway, um, she saw the ranch house, I understand, in 1918, and they set about deciding to turn it into a museum. The ranch house is pretty impressive. It is three stories high, stucco. It's stucco on the outside. It um, is just this massive pile of concrete um, that looks very dramatic on the landscape here. And um, so they set about turning this into the museum and plans were made, a document was drawn up called the Ideas and Desires and Dreams. Great things were in it, great things are in it. And they um, proceeded to start collecting artwork for the museum. And some of that artwork included the work by Auguste Rodin, um, which is a, a focal point of the museum. It included paintings and glasswork and all kinds of furniture and gold, gold leaf furniture, in fact, from Romania, um, because they knew so many people. Um, one of the people they knew very well was the Queen of Romania. And so being a great publicist that Loie was, she decided that that's who should come and dedicate the museum. And so they talked her into it. And she came in 1926. Um, to dedicate the museum, dedicating it actually to peace and beauty amid great fanfare because she was, as I understand it, the second royal person ever to visit the United States. So she had quite the um, tour coming across country after landing on the East Coast. She came by train, she brought a couple of her kids with her. They went um, horseback riding in the West, they chewed bubble gum, they met the native people along the way, they met a great many other Americans along the way, um, they explored all of American culture and had a grand time as near as I can tell. She got here on a November 3rd morning and they had decorated the entire building for her. Um, there were chrysanthemums and whatever they could find. They had a, the story goes that they had a red carpet from Goldendale from a hotel there and they laid it out on the ramparts or the ramp of the museum. And she walked up it to dedicate the museum and did so. It's a, it's a great story. Um, and uh, she certainly made an impact to everyone in the area. How did you come to know her? Oh, it would have been fun to know both the Queen and Loey, honestly. Yeah, yeah. So when they all left, the museum sat idle um, for about, well, really, Sam died in 1931. So it sat idle through his death. And then, of course, his estate had to settle. So it was 1938 before the museum could actually renovate itself. And it opened to the public on his birthday, May 13th in 1940. And uh, involved in that opening, and one of their friends was Alma de Brettville Spreckles, who helped found the Legion of Honor in San Francisco. So it was quite a group of people who came together to create this museum. That was another question I have. How did he come to know Anna Spreckles? Well enough. Oh, I, I understand. He ate something. Yeah, well, he met her through a green here. grocer friend in Portland, I understand. And actually, it was through Alma he met Loie Fuller. So there you go. <laughs> Life is unpredictable. And he went to school, Mr. Hill, did he with the King of Belgium? Apparently was he did. He was very proud of that. He was, uh, um, he went to school in, um, at some point, um, and I'm not really sure where and how that happened, but it must have been at Harvard when he got his degree. But in any event, they were apparently school chums, yes. And uh, what I remember when I was out there, that he originally built it, Mr. Hill, uh, as a gift, you might say, or a marital home. 
and his wife came out. She was the daughter of an even more famous uh, uh, railroad developer, another Mr. Hill, and she didn't really want to live there, and she went back. And then actually he had a sad life in some senses because his son didn't have his drive perhaps, and his daughter had uh, mental problems. Uh, well, that's, that yes, that's, all, that's all true to a certain extent. Um, his wife never saw Mary Hill. Um, she came to she came out to Seattle with the children at the early part of the turn of the century and settled in Seattle with him and really did not like Seattle and went back. He was going to build her a home there, very similar to this actually. It's still standing today. Um, but he uh, it wasn't finished when she left. And so she went back to Minneapolis and at that point they separated um, and, and kept separate lives. They never divorced, but they did separate at that point. But his projects in the Northwest were always um, exciting, vibrant. Um, he was always trying to do great things from the Peace Arch at Blaine, Washington, to Mary now, Hill Museum, to all the roads. there. And Sorry, I remember pardon? reading, perhaps I have the date wrong, but something like 1911 or 1913, he put in the first road, Hilly Road, uh, that had macadam on it because he was convinced, even though he was a railroad guy, that roads were the future for development. Oh, he believed he was a road person first and foremost. He uh, he built roads all over the Pacific Northwest. Was involved in them. He began the first. Um, he did the Washington Good Roads Association here in Washington in 1899. So he was really very early on a pioneer of roads. And he built the roads at Washington um, at his property because he wanted farmers to be able to get their products to the market. So from about 19, um, I think the beginnings of it were about 1909, but really through 1910 through 1912, he built roads here at Mary Hill. And they were highly experimental, nationally known because he promoted them everywhere. And um, they were the um, impetus sort of for the historic Columbia River Highway, which was built around 1914, 1915 that in Oregon. Um, he wanted roads in Washington. Um, I kind of think personally he wanted a giant H across the country because he was interested in um, the Pacific Highway, which ran down the west side of both states. Um, and he was interested in what is now known as Highway 97, which ran down the east side of both states. And in between, he had connecting roads going from Mary Hill to the Portland, Vancouver area. Um, so roads were a passion of his. They were a huge dream and a mu very much a part of his life, yes. You know, until I was out there, I had no idea that there was a festival of speed and there's a race every year at Mary Hill on those, as I say, very hilly roads with some of the more modern conveyances. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, the Festival of Speed itself sort of came to a conclusion. However, we still see skateboarders on the historic Mary Hill Loops Road every year. There's a group called the Mary Hill Rats, for example, that do the past couple of years, it's been hard with COVID, but generally they'll do three or four or five runs, public runs, so people can take their skateboards and, and run down the Loops Road. It's quite a big deal. It's quite an exciting enterprise for all of these people who love skateboarding and longboarding. And they're going down that road at a pretty good clip, sort of a scary proposition for me anyway. But yeah. um, it, it's very exciting, very exciting stuff. Mm -hmm. 
So I also understand that an early director of the museum loved chess, and he started a really uh, an impressive collection of chess sets. Would you Clifford, comment on that? Oh, I would love to actually, because actually they became one of my favorite parts of the museum as well. And I've written about them and um, been very much part of all the exhibitions that go on here on them. Um, he began, a, he had an exhibition in 1957, Clifford Dolph played chess by mail. Think about it for a minute, one move at a time. And he would keep, he had cards and he had various different postal games he could keep going. And he began looking at chess sets as little works of art, little sculptures in miniature. And so he um, decided to have an exhibition and he did that in, in, uh, in 1957 actually. And it was very, very popular. And people decided to donate some of the sets he had borrowed to the collection. And so it began then and um, with just a few sets. And today we have well over 30 300 um, chess sets in the collection um, and boards and some other um, checkers and other kinds of a backgammon, some other kinds of games as well. It's a fascinating um, collection that shows um, the whole world of chess and it's wonderful to see. Yeah, it's one of my favorites. And also the Indian collection Rodin was very impressive. Oh, the Rodin collection is truly inspirational. You can walk in it, you can see his plasters, you can see his bronzes, you can see what's really fantastic is a, is a life um, size um, sculpture of Eve, which is right there in the center of the room and it is amazing. It's amazing. And you can see how the artist worked um, with it. Of course, he had a huge studio and a lot of people that came and went in that studio. So, um, but it is beyond belief. It's beyond belief. And it's quite unique in that these pieces were all produced in Rodin's lifetime. They were not cast posthumously. Um, they were they were um, done in his studio, left his studio under his authorization. So they're really, uh, uh, the collection is all from the, the hand of Rodin. And you personally, what drew you to the field of art as a career? Oh, me personally, I love it. I just love it. I've loved it all my life. I love looking at things, you know, analyzing things, exploring art. Um, and I was drawn, I drew, I actually drew, I suppose if you really wanted to get down to the nitty gritty, it was horses. I loved horses and I was drawing horses at a very young age. But honestly, that kind of went beyond that. Um, and then when I discovered that there was a thing called art history, it was like the world opened up to me because there's so many expressions out there and so many ways to do art. Um, I could I could spend lifetimes, and I mean plural lifetimes, trying to explore all of the manifest, manifestations of the art world around us. Uh, do you are you do you have a visual eye? That is to say, I'm talking about myself now. If I see a painting and it's framed and it's an eighth of an inch out of plumb, out of, you know, it bothers me. It, it actually demands I pay attention to it and, and remediate. Do you have that kind of eye sensitivity? Or is uh, it definitely, <laughs> definitely, definitely. I have been in places like, you know, a long time ago, I was in a hospital and every painting down the hall was crooked and it just almost sent me over the edge. <laughs> yes. you know, but yes, no, I like things to be kind of neat and, and um, placed in the right place on the wall and level. Yeah. Yep. I understand that completely.
So are, you believe that art betters life, right? It, I definitely it, believe that. And mm -hmm. of course I do too. But what, what have we learned about art in hospital settings? Uh, is there, are there things to consider in terms of form or color that lift people or take people down? Often what you find is a sort of a dull green or a dull something. Um, has that ever come to your attention or have you ever thought about it? Oh, I have thought about it a lot, actually. I suppose because when I moved into the area, we settled in a town called The Dalles, which is in Oregon, just south of the south and a little um, west of the museum. And they have a hospital system there, and they um, they began being part of this kind of plane tree thing where they wanted to include art. And they do an excellent job, actually, of showing art in the hallways, showing art in rooms and in other places. And it's... Um, even in their um, local um, wellness centers to see, and it's art by artists of the area. It's not just um, commercially produced art. It is art by painters. I, I can recognize some of the artists on the wall. So it's just, I think it's essential. Looking at it can get you through trauma, exploring it, um, enjoying it, um, understanding it. Mm -hmm. Often in places that emphasize outdoor activities, whether it's boating or hunting or whatever it is, uh, culturally have less of an interest in, in art or, well, carving exceptions, maybe. And I was just thinking, I mean, the landscape is so compelling out there for outdoor activities. Have you ever found it a challenge or how do you invite people in for the luster and the experience of art if they're not naturally drawn to it, if they're in the canoe? Well, I, I think that, you know, first of all, Mary Hill is a site. It's, um, it's, uh, there's beauty inside and outside. And I remember once walking outside to snap a picture for somebody and, and I was, um, it happened to be a pristine, beautiful day and Mount Hood was just crisper than crisp. And I heard these visitors walk around the corner of the museum and catch a sight of Mount Hood. And it was like instantaneous, oh my God. So, you know, we try to be outside too. So we will do programs outside. A couple of years ago, we did um, printmaking outside and we did it with a steamroller. It was the most amazing thing. So we had these, um, I think there were 11 artists and they all had a section of the Columbia River Gorge and the communities and they worked with them and they created these very, very large prints. And then the day we printed them, they laid them out in a long, long, um, a form and the, the ink went on the boards, the boards went in the, on the form and our curator of art, Lou Palermo, just rolled that stream st steamroller, the tractor right on down over those prints and created this 66 foot long print. So we do, it was just very exciting. So we do these things all the time. We um, try to get people outside. We try to get the outside people inside because I think it's part of what Mary Hill is all about. I appreciated even the design of the barbed wire fencing so you didn't fall down the hill. There's great wind there. And I thought, you know, someone's going to need something. But the it was very pretty. I just thought attention to detail. Lovely. I thought it was, what? I think it's one of the most inspiring things we did. Um, when, when it was first proposed that we put that fencing along the edge of the, the um, property there, um, 
the local people go, you know, they call them rock jacks. And, gen and in general, a rock jack is a huge piece of um, just maybe big wire in which you put a bunch of rocks. And what that does is stabilize the fencing. Well, the designers, the landscape designers went up a step and created especially designed rock jacks in which we put the basalt rocks of the area in and then the, the wire that's strung in between to create the fence. And it kept it open. It kept the views going. You didn't have something blocking everything. Oh, no, it was an inspired design. I was really pleased with that one. Uh, the, the outdoor sculpture. That's happened while you're there, right? You're sort of a leader of that. I wasn't the inspiration behind it. The curator then um, was. He really wanted to have an invitational. And so we had an invitational show for years. And honestly, it, everybody got so excited that pretty soon we had people um, giving us money to purchase a piece things were donated for it. And now we have quite an extensive outdoor permanent collection of sculpture. Mm -hmm. And that's exciting to walk around and see all the different views, all different ways you can go around the sculpture. And of course, the inspiration behind that was the Rodans. I was very impressed that one couple gave a wing, uh, money for the wing of a extension of the building. That's oh, beautiful. the Mary and Bruce Stevenson beautiful. wing, yes. Mm -hmm. um, and generous. Yes, Mary, um, Mary was tremendous, uh, a tremendous supporter here. She loved Mary Hill, wanted to see it thrive. Um, yes, and so um, she gave a great deal of money for that wing. We had a lot of other supporters as well, but she was the primary mover and shaker behind that. Mm -hmm. Are you thinking in the next five years of any kind of changes? Well, I don't think in the next five years there'll be any monumental changes to the area. Um, we're working on other kinds of projects. We're conserving the Stonehenge Memorial, which is about three miles east of us, that Sam Hill built to honor the heroes who died in World War I for their country. Um, we are... Um, we are working on a water project so that our water system, like I said, water has always been an issue here. So we're working on a water project that will um, bring us uh, more water for the future, for future needs of the museum. Um, and we always have some sort of great exhibition planned or um, project planned. Um, next year, for example, we're going to have the Exquisite Gorge 2, which will be an outdoor oh. fiber arts installation. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Have you yeah. ever been to the World War II Museum in New Orleans? No, I would. I've never been to New Orleans. I would love to go to New Orleans, actually. I bet it's wonderful. Oh. Um, yes, do consider that. Do consider it. Um, just from someone in the field and someone who's an American, both very memorable. Mm -hmm. um, what are some of the frustrations in being in the arm world? Oh, I think sometimes it's. Um, I think money, getting enough money. And I'm talking nonprofits now, so um, maybe not so much in other art world areas, but certainly getting enough money to do the things you aspire to do, to open up windows to people's souls, you know. Um, so I think it's finding that money to keep doing your mission, you know, keep moving forward, keep providing opportunities for people to experience the art and all that they can do for them. That's one and yeah. career because of the uh, longevity. You've been there quite a while. Yeah. Oh yeah. Over periods of growth, so you could be very happy and, and pleased with that. 
I'm I'm very pleased. Honestly, I'm very pleased with the way Mary Hill is coming into the new um, the, the new century. We're doing a lot of great things, and we have an excellent excellent staff who um, have great dreams and ideas and aspirations. And we have a great leadership in the board of trustees who also help us do that. So we we're very lucky. We're very lucky. How do you encourage? Um maybe you're born with it, I don't know, enthusiasm and follow through in people associated uh, in your world? Or do you just look for them like I do? I just sticks, I don't know, maybe I expect it. So, uh, but I do think um, there's something satisfying about hearing a child go, oh, or a, or a mother actually who said, oh, once when I was talking about landscapes and had, she had never really thought about how an artist put a landscape together. Um, there's something so satisfying, you know, that you are breaking open um, a doorway for somebody to learn something new. And I think that is at the bottom of all that we do is to reach people. And so that kind of inspires all of us around here to do better, to do as the best we can. Um, is there an ideal age in children to come together uh, and have an art experience, or is that sort of random for every, any and all ages? I think it's any and all ages. I honestly, I think kids who are um, one and two can even benefit from coming to an art museum. They get to see new things. They're experiencing new things. They're seeing... You know, they may not understand, they won't understand necessarily a painting, but they're going to understand that the other adults around them are excited or the older kids around them are excited. And I think, um, I think people should be exposed to the arts and all the arts, not just the visual arts, but all the arts, music, especially and uh, painting and sculpture and poetry and writing and prose and anything um, as young as you possibly can do it. I have a friend who said, he was a physicist, and he said, uh, physicists are for facts, science are for facts, poetry is for life. And uh, sometimes I feel that about primarily the visual arts, but I agree with you, it's, it's, it's where you find it and your, your desire to search for it too. Um, That's right. For, right, for an enriched yeah. life, uh, to notice them too. Um, to value. Do you do anything with this, the newer internet opportunities or the Zoom opportunities nowadays? Last year, we just jumped into it. We didn't quite know what we're doing, but we did it yeah, anyway. And um, and one of the things that I am particularly proud of is, is we did this exquisitely connected project and people did their own artwork. Um, and they did it to a certain size and a certain specification so that it would connect to somebody else's artwork. And then they wrote a thing up about it. You go online and look at it, exquisitely connected. Thank you so very much, Colleen. We certainly have learned uh, a lot about uh, leadership, Mr. Hill, desire, the effect <laughs> of someone who can grow up with a museum, create the opportunities such as you, and the tremendous commitment to the highest level of uh, quality. So you're to be a graduate, graduated as uh, are all the helpers around the volunteer and professional side. So thank you and have a wonderful life. And to everybody else, thanks for tuning in and I'll see you next week.
To contact Junia, send her an email at juniadonesthespark at gmail.com. For more information, program schedules, and news about future guests, go to www.juniadonethespark.com. Thank you for joining us. See you next time on Junia Dones the Spark. Local productions seen on Delta College Public Media are made possible with support from viewers like you. Thank you. This program is presented by a community producer through Midland Community Television. The City of Midland and MCTV are not responsible for the content of the program. The views presented do not necessarily represent those of the City of Midland or MCTV. If you would like to produce your own program, contact MCTV at 837-3474 or access our website, cityofmidlandmi.gov MCTV. We hope you enjoy the following presentation.